Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke's Gospel tonight. Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, 39 through 46. Hopefully familiar territory in your heart. As we come up on Easter, we're tackling some of the stories surrounding the passion of Christ. Uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. When you think of or hear someone say the phrase, the power of prayer, what kind of power do you think is what normally people talk about when they say that? What kind of answers to prayer are they probably most likely referring to? The power of prayer. What do you think? Anybody? Healing of what? Like physical health? Yeah. Uh, Can I say a miraculous healing that God would just deliver them from a sickness or a disease or some physical ailment? Right. What else do you think people more of the times than not refer to the power of prayer? Wow. They might say, wow, you know, really was awesome to see the power of prayer in that situation. What do you think more times than not they refer to? Jane? Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, generically, I would say, yeah, whatever they've been asking for, whatever form it is or whatever request it was, that God answered it just like that. What else? Tremel. Say, oh, turn someone's life around. Yep. So not only maybe some major healing, but maybe uh, spiritual healing, turning someone's life around and seeing their lives completely changed and transformed. We hope to see that a lot, right? What else? Sue. Protection in a bad situation. Fantastic, yep. That would be true in Ukraine right now. That would be a great power of prayer, right? Someone else? Anyone else? What stories in the Bible would you say show great power in prayer? What, what's the first story, the Bible story, that comes to your mind? You can't use this one. I already... <laughs> Ray. Okay, good. That was the first one I had. Elijah praying for rain and then for it not to rain and rain again, right? Right. Cammie? Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel in the lion's den. That would be Sue's protection from a bad situation, right? Excellent. If that's the one you're thinking of. Dawn? Hannah. Hannah not being able to have children and uh, she becomes pregnant. Yep, Jim? Lazarus. Lazarus, I mean, that, that's pretty powerful, right? Raising from the dead. Anyone else? What story comes to your mind in the Bible story? Yes, Tim? Uh, 
Yeah. Totally reversed what could have been a horrible situation. Right? Excellent. Um, this text that we read just now is about the power of prayer. But not like the power of any of those prayers that you just talked about or any of those stories you've talked about. Um, this is definitely a text that is all about prayer. Look at verse 40 and 46. It mentions the word pray. Another form, prayed, verses 41 and 44. Prayer, verse 45. So in eight verses, five times in its various forms, the word prayer or pray or prayed is used. Um, but in the text, when it comes to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, it's a different kind of power in prayer. It's not for a miraculous healing it's not for a supernatural miracle or something that would wow people. It's not for transformation considering someone's salvation from being lost to being saved. It's not for protecting them from evil per se of a physical kind. Um, it's not any of those things. It's a different kind of power in prayer. And I've called it tonight the power to triumph in testing. We don't normally in our minds, associate the power of prayer with the ability to overcome the difficulties, troubles, and the tests that we take or have in our lives. But Jesus did. Um, he did. In fact, it's not surprising that he would because if you read Luke's gospel closely enough, you'll find that Jesus prayed just about about everything. I'm just going to run through a litany. Uh, Luke 5, 16, he withdrew often to play, pray in desolate places. Chapter 6, verse 12, he went out to a mountain and prayed, and he prayed all night, and that was before he chose who would be his 12 disciples. He prayed, uh, told his disciples, pray for those who abuse you, Luke 6, 28. Peter, James, and John accompanied him up in the mountain of transfiguration, and when he prayed, his face shone, and his whole cloak and everything about him began to show and reflect God's glory. Chapter 10 and verse 2, he told people, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. So he prayed about missions and reaching people, Jew and Gentile, with the gospel. Chapter 11, verse 1, he himself was praying, and his disciples watched him, and he taught them how to pray. He said, this is how you should pray, and he gave us the Lord's prayer. Chapter 18, verses 1 and 10, he told a parable about prayer. He told about two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector also, who went up to the temple to pray. Jesus did everything. Everything was about prayer for him, and whether it was teaching others about it, forming and shaping the disciples' lives about how to pray, whether it was the answer to prayer showing that he was God because he prayed as a result. I mean, you can go through Luke and you'll find that he had, prayer was a, a huge part of his life. So when we come to this one, it's not an anomaly in Jesus' life. It's not something that's out of the regular kind of person or the lifestyle that he had. But this is just another thing for him. And, and it's not surprising because if you pray about everything, you'd also pray about the testings that you're going to face. Now, in our text, if you want to get the framework of it, here's how you can study or here's how I read it. The beginning and the ending are the same because uh, they are the almost exactly the same uh, wording, and that's in verse 40 and 46. He makes the command to the disciples twice. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation, verse 40. And he says at the end, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here's what he's doing. In our minds, he's doing this for the disciples. They're going to have the biggest tests of their lives. They have followed Jesus for three plus years. 
And they've been tested at other times, but nothing that will even come close to what they're going to be tested in the next few hours and the next few days. And so he begins and ends, he brackets this little discussion on prayer by this little admonition that you ought to be praying in preparation for your testing when you have it. Like, now, Jesus had already said this to them, and I don't know on that night when they heard those command, command issued twice, whether they remember, but in Luke eleven four, he said when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, the very last line, it says this, lead us not into temptation. And so he had already had the lecture on this subject, if I could frame it that way for you. But now, days, months later, the lecture has been gone, it's passed, but now they're going to have the lab. See, the Garden of Gethsemane is going to model for them what it means to pray and triumph in your testing. So they've heard what he said about it, and now he's going to show them what it actually looks like in difficult times. Two times in the text, if you want to underline them, verses 39 and 45, both, both mention the disciples. The first time it says, he went to the place and the disciples followed him. Those are discipleship terms. He says it later down in the end, verse 45, and he talks again and mentions that they are his disciples. So when you read this text, you ought to see it as a discipleship lesson. And by the way, we all need that. Every Christian is a disciple. That's not the question. The question is what kind of disciple you are. And one of the things that Jesus wanted to teach them and model for them over and over and over again was prayer. In this text, the reason we need it is because it's a contrast. If you look throughout the text, you'll see that Jesus is one thing when it comes to prayer, and the disciples are quite another. Jesus is sweating. The disciples are sleeping. Jesus is in agony. They are in apathy. Jesus is kneeling down. They are laying down. I mean, you couldn't get much polar extreme opposites of one another. He has told them, pray. Pray that you'll enter into the testing. Pray that you overcome the testing. He is doing exactly what he says for them to do. They are not doing any of it. That's why, see, you and I need the lesson. It wasn't that they didn't know that they should pray in their testing. It wasn't that. It wasn't that they didn't hear him. It wasn't that they didn't have this admonition even months earlier. But when it came time for the rubber meets the road and they really faced, faced difficult testings in their life, they didn't pray. Now watch. But Peter had already heard this just a, a few verses earlier in this same chapter. He is told personally by Jesus, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. 22.31 reads, but it says, but I have prayed for you. See, I prayed that when you face this test, that you won't ultimately fail it. See, he already said, listen, Peter, I already told you. See, you're going to have a test, and you're going to fail it, but I've prayed for you. And then he says, but you need to pray too. Jesus prayed that you wouldn't fail, that you wouldn't utterly leave the faith, right? But he also says, Peter, you need to pray. I want to show you how important it is. I'm going to pray for you in your testing, and you need to learn and do the same. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't. He failed to prepare 
because he failed to pray. See, no prayer before tests, no passing during tests. Fail to pray is fail, fail to pass the tests. See, tonight, I don't know for sure what test that you're facing. I don't know what difficulties that you're coming upon in your life, if they're financial, if they're physical, if they're spiritual, if it's a struggle with sin, if it's a relationship problem, or, or something else completely. But here's what I know, that if you're going to face the test and you're going to triumph in the test, you better be a person of prayer. So between these two brackets... 40 and 46, which says, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Jesus is going to teach us how to face tests with prayer. And there are three tests in particular tonight. I want to point them out to you and unpack them one at a time. So let's look at them, each one, tonight. The first one is this, the submissive test. So we're going to pray, and we need to pray in preparation for tests. And the first one is the submission test. Notice that the place of submission. Jesus, the Bible said, and it doesn't say it in the text, it doesn't say it's a garden, it doesn't even say it's Gethsemane. It says that it was on the Mount of Olives. I've been to the Mount of Olives, it's on the eastern slope of Israel looking down, it's a beautiful view. There is a garden there, there are olive trees that are very old, not as old as Jesus' time, but it's a beautiful place. Gethsemane is the word in Hebrew, got shamina, which means oil press. It's where you crushed oil, uh, the olives to make oil. In other words, this is a place, and by the very name of the place that Jesus chose to pray, and he did choose it for lots of reasons, but it's a place where you're crushed, which reminds us automatically, Isaiah 53, 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. That's what Isaiah says. But listen, it, it's a place where Jesus is going to learn to a degree that he never has before submission to the Father's will. Remember when he was a child, his parents found him after they had to travel back, and it says he went home and became submissive unto them in Luke 2.51. He learned submission. It was his parents' authority, and he had to go home, and he had to be submissive to them, and he learned that. Hebrews 5.8 says, speaking of Jesus, that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. It didn't mean that he went from disobedience to obedience. He went from one level of obedience, one level of submission to another. In other words, everything that happened in his life, he was submitting to the Father's will, and he kept growing in it and maturing in it and becoming more complete in it until the time he was prepared to be submissive to the greatest test that he would ever face, and that's the cross, the place of submission. Um, I don't know in the Bible if you ever think about these things, but there are places that you don't forget um, that your life changed when God got a hold of you and broke you. I think of Jacob and Peniel. I think of Moses at the burning bush, changed the whole tra trajectory of his life. Saul in Damascus Road when he's knocked off the animal he was riding and he fell to the ground. I mean, there are just places you remember in your life. And if we span the audience tonight and gave a mic and had everybody share testimonies, you could remember, say, you know, I was in a church. I can tell you to this day, at my home church, I know what section I was in and the pew I was in uh, when I heard the gospel message and God helped me be submissive to his grace and I got saved. I remember that night vividly. 
And you can remember the very place sometime that you were. Maybe it was your living room. I've had people tell me about the stories about how their life changed and their parents were uh, tucking them in at night. I've heard all kinds of stories, but people associate, and in the Bible it's the same way, with the place. And God chose a place that we would remember, a place where you're crushed, a, pr- a place where you learn to be submissive and put yourself under the will of God. Jesus had that place. But it was more than that. Um, it was the posture of submission. Because the Bible says he knelt down and prayed. For Jewish people or Orthodox, even to this day, the normal or most common posture of prayer is standing up. There are many other postures to prayer, but the one that Jesus chose on that night was to kneel down and pray. It's actually the only time Luke uses that phrase in his entire gospel. In his other volume, volume 2 in Acts, he only uses it two times, one of Peter and one of Paul, and both in instances where they needed God's divine power in a circumstance that was beyond their control. We would call it dependence. See, Jesus was teaching himself by praying in a place where he knew he would be crushed. And by the way, the place he knew Judas would know where to find him, which was another act of submission to God's will. He didn't try to find some place where Judas would never find him. He said to the religious leaders, I know where he'll be. And Jesus went to that place knowing they'd find him. Jesus is purposely submitting by the place he went to, by the way he prayed. See, he is seeking to be submissive to the will of the Father. It's humble dependence. Basically, it says, Jesus stood, didn't stand. He got down on his knees. He got a a stone throw away from everybody else because this was not something at this point in his life where he's trying to impress anybody, right? He's on his knees by himself with God, and here's what he needs the most. He needs to tell the Father, I need you. Does that amaze you? That God needed God. The Son of Man needed to be submissive. And here's what he knew. I can't do it without God. I can't. So I'm dependent on him. I get on my knees. I want him to know on the outside, on the outside, by kneeling down, that I plan to be submissive to him, even if it's going to be difficult, and it was. More than that, not just the place of his submission, or the posture of it, not just outside submission, but inside submission, because then he has the prayer of submission. And here's what he says, Father. Now see, that's hard, because when we are submissive and we know there is something God wants us to do, and we don't like it, we don't want it, and it's hard for us, in fact, we know there's going to be difficulty and suffering, and it's going to cost us something to be submissive and do what we know God wants us to do. See, we begin to think, oh God, why would you want me to do this? Why would you ask me? Why would you command me to do this? And we begin to think, and we call him God. But Jesus says, I never doubt for a second, Father, by saying that. I never doubt that you love me. I never doubt that you care about me. Jesus never questioned for a moment whether God was faithful or committed. No, he says, Father, because that's the way Jesus prayed about everything. In fact, I test you to go in the New Testament and find a time where Jesus prayed when he did not address God as his Father. Because that was his pattern too. And, And can I tell you, in his darkest hour, his most difficult time, in the most 
spiritually agonizing challenge that he would ever face, that never changed. See, he's still calling on his father. And he says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But not my will, he says, but yours be done. Jesus, as the God-man, hear me, is feeling the tension between what he wants and what God wants. Have you ever had a war of the wills with God? Have you ever had that? Have you ever struggled knowing exactly what God wants you to do, but not wanting to do it? I'm sure this never happened, right? None of us. Have you ever struggled with that? I don't want to forgive them. Now, you wouldn't say that out loud, at least not at church, right? But you're at home, and you're thinking over it, probably more than you should, and you're thinking about what they said to you, or about you, or what they've done to you. And I found that it may not be recent, that maybe it's years ago, and maybe it was your parents, or maybe it was a friend, or maybe it was someone at church, and you still see them from time to time, but you say in your heart, ah, I know you're saying to me, God, forgive them, because you've commanded me to, but I don't want to. I really don't want to. I know you want me to, but I don't want to. And we find it to be str- and it's struggle. It's a struggle, isn't it, to submit to that. See, you felt that tension, haven't you? See, I don't want to give 10%. I, I don't want to. I know you want me to. I know you want me to give that. In the, but I, see, I don't, because you know I have these bills, and I have this, and I had planned to do this with my money. But I know that you want me to give and give faithfully and consistently. I know you want me to. But I don't want to. Not because I don't want to give anything, God. It's never that easy. See, I, I don't want to Watch, ready? I don't want to give my testimony in public. <laughs> I'm afraid. I love you, Lord, and I love your, what you've done in my life, but uh, stand in front of these people, say that out loud. I know you want me to. I know it'd be really good for me to learn to do that and what an impact I might be able to have and tell people what you've done with the story of my life. See, I, I don't want to confront someone that I love, a good friend of mine. I don't want to tell them that the things they're involved in, they, should, they need to get out of that. That's too hard, Lord. They might not like me. It may ruin our relationship. It, see, I know you say that I should love my friends and I should love them and care about them and even rebuke them and correct them, but I don't want to do that. I, I value this too much. And see, I don't want to, and see, you fill in the blank. Jesus felt the tension. I know what God wants me to do. I don't want to do it. It's going to be too hard. See, have you ever struggled? Flip it over. Have you ever struggled knowing God does not want you to do something, but you really, really want to? I really want to make this purchase. I really like to have that car. Not that one, that one. I'd like to have that. I can't afford it. I can, but it would really bind me, and that's probably why I wouldn't give 10%, because I'd have that car. I really want that. I I know you don't want me to. I know you'd want me probably rather to pay this bill and to invest in people and use my money in other ways for the kingdom. See, I really want to get even with this person. I'd rather ignore them and sit on the other side of the auditorium. I know what you want. I, I just don't, I really, really want to do this. I want to get even. I want to ignore them. I want them to feel what I felt. I really want 
just to stay at home from church tonight. Ah, I know you want me to go. I know you want me to be there. I know other people might need my encouragement. I really want, and you say to yourself, I really want to get out of this marriage. I know God doesn't want me to. He wants me to endure. He wants me to love. He wants me to be patient. But I really want to. I really want to, and see, you fill in the blank. See, they're both difficult, aren't they? And Jesus was facing them. It was a test, but you know how he faced that test? The submission test, he faced it on his knees. He came to the Father, and he says, Father, I know that you want this. And on my knees, I'm going to pray because, you know what? I want to want what you want. And this is how I'm going to get there. But that's the first test. The second test is the suffering test in verses 42 and 43. He says, Father, if you're willing. And it's rhetorical, and the Greek would also tell you, without being too technical, that he's asking a question that he already knows the answer to. I don't believe myself personally that he's genuinely trying to get God to change his mind. But he is telling us and God that he is struggling with it. If, it's, if he says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. This is the third cup we did this Sunday night. This is the third cup at the Passover meal. This is the cup of wrath that comes along with the cup of redemption. It's the cup of wrath that God's going to pour out. He has now in his mind and heart, he understands perhaps fully than he, more than he has ever before what it's going to cost him to bear your sin and shame in mind. And he understands what it's going to be like to drink the cup. In fact, look back just a few verses, same chapter again. In verses 17 and verse 20, he's having the Passover meal, and he talks twice, verse 17 and 20, both about the cup. And, you know, it's one thing, isn't it? Again, lab lecture. See, here's the lecture. Hey, here's the Passover meal. We're in a nice table. We're all together. Judas is gone. It's all of us. Everything is good. And I'm going to tell you about the cup, and I'm going to tell you that you're going to drink it, and I'm going to drink it. But it's one thing to know about the cup intellectually, isn't it? It's one thing about being in a room with all your friends and everything's good in that moment. It's one thing to talk about the cup. But move down the chapter to where we are, and now you're in the garden and you're on your knees praying, and here's what you know. I'm not in the upper room anymore. I'm not really around my friends anymore, and I know what they're going to do in just a few minutes. But now I'm not just talking about the cup. I'm going to actually have to drink it and then the first sip, so to speak, is coming in a few minutes. That's quite another thing, isn't it? See, here's what Jesus believed. He believed that everything in his cup was planned by his Father. He believed everything that he was going to drink, all the wrath, all the condemnation that he did not deserve, he was going to suffer in ways that we can't even fathom. See, Jesus had to learn this. He had to learn to trust God with everything in his life, everything that was in the cup. I've been watching, and maybe you have on the news, all the things going on in U Ukraine. I mean, you walk down the streets after the Russian soldiers and military have left Kiev and other places, Bucha and other places. I mean, it is, I won't even mention, if you've seen them, that's probably more than enough. The atrocities, torture, sexual assault, 
execution, trench burials, blown up hospitals. I mean, unbelievably bad. You look at that and you wonder if you're, especially if you're anybody for sure, but as a Christian, how do you look at that and say, I still trust God? If that's the cup that you've been asked to drink, would you still trust? I'm thinking if I'm a Ukrainian Christian and they come to my town and I've seen what's going on or at least heard what's going on. See, it's not possible to pass the suffering test without God's strength. Here's what Jesus is teaching us and his disciples. You can't do it on your own. That's why you pray. Now listen, in the very next verse, it says, at that point, an angel from heaven comes down, and the Bible says, it comes down from heaven, strengthening him. Can I tell you, Jesus needed help from heaven to pass the suffering test. He needed help, and here's how he got it. He prayed, and as an answer to his prayer, God sends an angel. Now, if you look at Jesus' life in totality in the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that angel appearances in Jesus' life bookend all that he was about. The most of them, by far, are used at his birth, and we could talk about it. You know them all, right? He co- angels sent to Zechariah, and you know all the things that the angel comes and tells him, and he's in the temple, and he goes mute, and so forth and so on. The angel comes to Mary. angel comes to Joseph. I mean, he has, angels are all over the beginning of Jesus' life, but then you have at the very opposite end of it. Now you have an angel coming at the very end of Jesus' life. You know why? Because here's what's true. Jesus needed God's strength from the beginning to the end. And listen, here's the discipleship lesson. So do we. See, that's why we don't get on, I'm convinced why we don't pray, because we're too strong. (laughs) We're too powerful. See, Jesus wasn't, he was God, and here's what he said, I need you. Let me show you, I need you, I'm I'm getting down on my knees, you know why? I need special help. I need help to be able to withstand and follow and triumph in this test. See, Jesus' life and the major events Heavenly manifestations came as a result of prayer. Jesus is baptized, he prays, heaven is open, and he hears God's voice. At his transfiguration, same thing. While he was praying, he began to be transfigured, and you hear the voice of God from the cloud. And then you hear it in Gethsemane. See, here's the pattern. Jesus prays, and God moves and speaks and manifests his grace to Jesus from heaven. See, it's an amazing thing when you and I get on our knees because we can go to heaven on our knees we know that God will respond to our prayers and when we get on our knees if we are right with him and the Bible says he is strengthened it's an unusual word there are a lot of Greek words for might, power, ability all those things dunamis which we get the word dynamite there's all kinds of Greek words This one is different because here's what it means. It means to cause strength to return. It means to regain your strength. It pictures that you've lost it, but you've got to get it back. In fact, outside of the New Testament, this word is most commonly used of people that went through strength training to become athletes. In other words, it's a picture of someone who doesn't have the strength, but they really need it, so they get trained by someone to be ready for the athletic competition so that they can actually be strong enough for it. 
See, that's a different kind of power in prayer that we don't think about. See, did you ever think that prayer is strength training? That when you get on your knees, you are teaching, God is teaching you and you are teaching and training yourself that here's what I need, that the power I need to face the test I'm going to have in my life today comes from God, not from me. You're training yourself to believe that. So the more you believe it, the more you'll turn to him, the more that you'll pray, the more that you'll depend on him and get on your knees. And see, you'll, you, you wouldn't be able to contemplate starting or ending a day without it. You know why? Because you're too weak. You can't pass the suffering test without it. Can I tell you, you are never stronger as a Christian, never, than when you are on your knees. So let me ask you, what is your cup? What is the suffering that you're facing? What is the thing that God has asked you to do that you're really finding tension doing it because you know it's going to cost you and there might even be some level of some sort of pain in it? So you'll never face that test and triumph in it without prayer. So there's the, right, there's the submission test, there's a suffering test, and lastly, I just call it because the text mentions it, right? It's the sleep test. In verses 44 through 46. And being in agony, it says he prayed more earnestly. Earnestly is a word, strange word. It means to stretch or extend yourself. Have you ever seen the Olympics or some track meet where they're running a race and it's, it's, it's what is it called, a photo finish, right? And a photo finish, what are they usually doing when they get to the finish line? Oh, they're going like this, right? I mean, I've seen them extend so far they actually fall on the ground and hurt themselves. But that's this word. It means that you are putting out every ounce of your energy, energy, and you are stretching, extending yourself. See, here's what Jesus, he is on his knees praying, and he is energetic. He is really moved by this. He is getting ready for the cross, and he is extending, I mean, he is really putting himself out there in prayer. And the Bible calls it agony. Jesus is praying and the disciples are sleeping. He's struggling. They don't even know there's going to be a struggle, really. Agony is the word agonizo. You know what it means? It can mean a fight. It can mean physical, emotional pain, but it also can be a fight, a struggle, a battle. It's, in this text, combat. It's a State of readiness for a decisive battle. We call it a mortal a conflict. It's a victorious struggle. The word is used by Jesus in John 18, 36. Remember when he said to Pilate as he was standing talking to him, he asked him, are you a king? And he says, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, John 18, 36, what do he say? My soldiers would have been fighting. That's the word agony, fighting. Remember when Paul said, I have fought the good fight. Both words, fought, fight, is the word agony. He told Timothy as a pastor, war the good warfare. You know what it is in the Greek? Agonize the good agony. Most of the time, the word agony is used to describe when you're in a fight. You're struggling. Can I tell you? That's what prayer is. To face testing and triumph in it to be willing to submit your will to God and to do it to pay the price of what you might lose in order to do it will be a fight for your life. 
Colossians 4, 12 is a wonderful verse about a guy who really prayed, and his name was Epaphras. Perhaps, as some commentators think, he might have been the actual founder of the church at Colossae. We're not sure about that. But he certainly loved the people and risked his life for them and to the point where he got sick unto death, it says in chapter 2 of Philippians. But here's what it says about him in Colossians chapter 4. Epaphras, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Always struggling. The word struggling, agonizing. See, Epaphras is like Jesus. You know what he's doing? He's on his knees agonizing for people. See, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, see, everyone else is sleeping, but he's struggling. He's agonizing. He's agonizing that he will do the will of the Father, pay the price, endure the suffering for you and me. He's agonizing over it to the point where the Bible says he sweats great drops of blood. Now, whether the blood vessels in his head like a few people in history have had that the intense pressure was so great that blood seeps into his pores and actually blood pours down. I'm not sure if that was whatever it was, but I can tell you this. It is a verb that talks about intensity. Jesus is suffering in this sense. He's agonizing. He's in a battle. He's in a fight. And he's getting ready for the cross. Our triumph in testing is one on the battlefield of prayer. We often don't think that way. We think maybe sometimes, at least for some of us, perhaps in their testing in most difficult times, prayer is probably one of the last things that we think about doing, or perhaps maybe more likely the one, one of the most infrequent things that we do. But Jesus is fighting to be ready for his ultimate test, and he's sweating over it. He's agonizing. Sometimes, if we're honest, right, if we're honest, sometimes we overestimate our ability to handle the test before us by what we are going to do. I don't know what you see yourself as, a doer tonight or someone who contemplates more than does, but if you're a doer tonight, I would think that one of our biggest struggles as doers is that when we face tests and whatever shape or form they come in, that we contemplate or we sit around and we think, this is what I'm going to do about it. We have a plan and we put it into action because here's what we think. We overestimate how powerful we are, so we think if we can just do the right things and do all the things that we should, see, we're going to get through this and everything's going to be fine because doing means we can control it, right? And we overestimate our ability to handle trials by doing and we underestimate our ability to handle trials by praying. We underestimate it. See, we'd rather do something in our control and change everything around instead of first going to say, God, I can't. I really can't change it around. I'm really powerless to do anything. And you know what? We would pray more if we really believe that. When we face tests and we knew a difficulty was coming, you know the first thing and the thing we do most often would be? We would get on our knees and we would pray. So as you face tests and you drink the cup that's been given to you, I think Luke would want us to ask, are you struggling or are you sleeping? Are you a pray person or just think that you can do it on your own? I think it's interesting the way it ends. 
in verses 45 and 46. And when he circled it, he rose from prayer. See, he's been on his knees, and now with the strength from heaven, he's going to stand up and go meet his betrayer and drink the cup. I don't think it's just metaphorical or grammatical. I think it's true. He was on his knees, and now he can stand up. He's ready. He's ready to face it. But watch the next verse. He tells them, and he changes the little admonition that brackets the text, and he adds a little word. And you know what it is? Rise. It's the same verse, word in verse 45 that he said he rose because he had knelt down and now he's ready to stand up. But see, he's telling them, stand up and pray. But you haven't been. See, you're not able to stand up because you haven't knelt down first. I'll never be able to know. It's a hypothetical. But I wonder if Peter would have responded to his test differently if he would have been praying instead of sleeping. Do you think he would have done better when faced with the denials, he might have. I wonder if the disciples, more of them other than John, would have been at the cross instead of hightailing it out of the garden to try to save their own neck. I wonder if things would have been different if they would have been praying instead of sleeping. I wonder. I wonder if things would be different for you and for me and the facing the test that you have in your life, and the things, I wonder if your family would be different, and your marriage would be different, and your kids would be different, if when you faced your tests, you were able to stand up because you first had knelt down. Let's close in prayer. No better way to end tonight than praying for one another, no? With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here tonight, you say, Pastor Walker, I am going to face some tests. Maybe not the three that Jesus alluded to in this text, but some tests of my own, a little bit of a different cup I'm going to have to drink. But I'm facing them, and I, I want you to know, tonight I think I've heard you. I want to face these tests first on my knees. I want to kneel down so that I can stand up. I don't want to look back and say, boy, I wish I would have responded and faced that test differently. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, I don't need to know any more than that. Would you just say, here's my hand, Pastor Walker, pray for me, because I want to face and triumph over the tests that are coming up for me, and I want to do it on and in doing so, here's what I'm saying. God, I need you. Here's my hand. Pray for me. Would you just sup it up and I'll pray for you here in a moment and I close. Thank you all over, all over. I'll wait a moment. I don't want to miss anybody. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. You can put your hands down. Anyone else? Father, thank you that you are a prayer answering God. Father, I pray that you would teach us to pray like your disciples that you taught. And I pray that we would learn this lesson that we can't get through tests, we can't triumph in them unless we seek you, unless we pray. If we fail to pray, we will fail to pass. May your people who raise their hand tonight, may they face their test differently because they've heard from you tonight. 
May they face their test differently because you will hear from them and be glorified. Send your power, Lord, from heaven because we can't do this by ourselves. Help each one who raised their hand tonight that you might get the glory, your people might get the good, and the lost might get the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.